Welcome to Craftlet, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting here from the glorious Hudson River Valley in the little village of Croton on Hudson, New York. Episode 4 Grandma Clutter. Well, goodness, welcome to podcast number five. I am just, I am blown away. Where has the time gone? Do we, do we like get one month anniversary presents or something? If so, could we maybe get some fiber or perhaps some packing boxes? More on that later. First, I wanted to thank all of you who wrote to me either by email or by posting comments and letting me know what books you're interested in. Um, we got some really interesting suggestions from Switzerland. We got the suggestion of Tristan and Isolde, which is um, a wonderfully tempestuous love story. There was a film made of it recently, which really kind of surprised me because it's, um, it is also an opera. It's uh, based on a rather ancient story. Uh, Tristan, I think, is working for King Mark. I'm reaching way back into my memory right now. And is supposed to uh, schlep Isolde, his uh, bride-to-be, to him. But on the ocean voyage, they fall in love with each other. And uh, that's kind of all she wrote. They fall in love. It's doomed. It's it's bad. Uh, but it's, you know, one of those wonderfully dark and stormy kind of love stories. It's wonderful. So that was one of our suggestions for uh, book number two. Another idea was Tom Sawyer, which I am intrigued by. I'm going to go back and check to see if somebody's done a, um, a version of Huck Finn because I'm thinking maybe we could do a two-parter. We could do Tom and then we could do Huck because uh, I've actually taught both books in high school and it is rather interesting what happened to old Mr. Twain in between the two books. His, um, his life certainly took a downward spiral towards the end of Huck Finn and you can tell by the end of Huck Finn that he doesn't much like Tom anymore. He doesn't write him very nicely by the end of Huck Finn. Um, it's as though Tom Sawyer is a children's story and then Twain grew up and Huck is uh, the far more adult story uh, than the two. The other suggestion that came across was how wonderful it would be if we could get a copy, a solo project of Alice in Wonderland. And I, boy, I so agree. Alice in Wonderland is such an interesting book and I've never taught it before so I'd, I'd have to do some research. But gosh, that would be that would be a lot of fun. However, it is not in the LibriVox catalog as a solo project. And last week, I think I made it pretty clear why I'd like to stick to solo projects. So I have a challenge for you. If you can get a hold of a microphone, uh, and I recommend a headset microphone, and I'll tell you why in just a second. Um, but if you can get a hold of a microphone, you can download free recording software, you will be shocked at how ridiculously simple the recording software actually is to run and to edit on. So you can edit out all your 
coughing and you're humming and you're, hey, close that door. Why are you opening it? I told you I needed 25 minutes alone. Um, you can edit all that out very, very easily. The reason I recommend a headset mic rather than a standalone mic is this. One, if you have sons who are into gaming, it is likely you already have one in your house. And by gaming, I mean in this case, computer gaming. Two, if you get a stand microphone, you will need to get some kind of screen, whether it's you take a wire hanger and you bend it into something that resembles a circle and you stretch a woman's uh, pair of nylon stockings over it, you must place something between you and the mic. Otherwise, this is what you will hear. If you say, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers, hear how I popped? <laughs> that's called popping. And that's what happens when you expel breath from your mouth in an explosive manner, which is what P's do. Sometimes you get it with T's, sometimes with K's, all sorts of uh, all sorts of letters that require a quick expulsion of air. Can do that on a microphone. I am on a headset mic, and I have spun the microphone so that it is actually up above my nose, so I can Peter Piper picked a peck all day long, and it's not going to pop into the mic. I don't know if they're cheaper. I don't know if they're more expensive. All I know is I knew that I needed to have everything on my head. Uh, plus I tend to move around a lot and if you move your head from side to side and have a standalone mic, you run the risk of actually turning your head away from the microphone and having your audio get cut off. So that is the end of my Rhapsody on the mic. Uh, just my two cents, but the ultimate point is this. If you have a mic and you download free software, you can record Alice in Wonderland and then we can play it here. Feel free. Actually, heck, pick your favorite book, record it for LibriVox and I'll, I'll use it. I don't plan on stopping this podcast anytime soon. So, you know, I'm just going to keep broadcasting books. Um, I could edit that out, but I won't. The next thing we're going to talk about is getting in touch with our inner granny, specifically granny squares. Now I crocheted, well I can't really say I crocheted before I knitted. I did knit first, but I was a bad knitter for so long that I, I really do feel like my first, my first fiber craft, aside from sewing and doing the lame embroidery that I talked about last week was really crochet. I made a lot of things out of crochet. Lots of afghans, lots of baby blankets, baby booties, grown-up booties, scarves. I think I even did a pair of crochet mittens, although that might be apocryphal. Anyway, crochet was the first thing that I was really very successful at on a large scale. My sister is a crocheter, and she's actually an excellent uh, very, very good crocheter. She's crocheted lovely little baby sweaters and booties for both of my sons. She inspired me. <clears throat> and when she inspired me, she didn't know it. But I was thinking about her. I was thinking about crochet. And then I was looking at the summer 2005 issue of Spinoff. Now, if you have a yarn store near you that also sells fiber for spinning, they may have back issues of 
spinoff around. If you have never spun and you pick up a copy and you start reading it, there is a very good chance that without ever having touched fiber, you will become addicted and you'll just have to get your hands on a spindle and you will start spinning. The summer 2005 issue has a lovely picture of an African-American woman wearing a purple kind of a gauzy uh, blousey top with this spectacularly hand-painted crocheted granny square fishnetted vest. It's a pullover vest that is made out of granny squares turned on a diamond angle, fishnetted together with just, you know, single crochet chains. It is stunning. And I got a hold of some amazing Grafton Hills fiber that is drafting so fine and so spectacularly with these lovely subtle color changes that I kind of had to put the two together. So even though I haven't crocheted in, oh my Lord, probably six years, that's really probably true. It has been about six years. Uh, I picked up a little D hook and some of my hand spun on a spindle, not on a spinning wheel. I did this on a spindle, which they recommend for a very good reason that I'll explain in a second. I started crocheting these little granny squares together and I'll be darned if they didn't come out looking spectacular. They're very alive and vibrant because you're not using a plied yarn. And this is why you have to knit or crochet, I'm sorry, off the spindle. <clears throat> there is a technique called using um, live singles, singles that still have their energy, that still have their twist in them. If you knit with a single yarn, that means it hasn't been plied with another strand, your knitting actually starts to go sideways and it goes sideways in the direction that you spun in. Actually, I don't know that if that's true. If it's a Z twist, it goes one way. If it's an S twist, it goes another way. That will make sense to you when you start spinning. And you will, trust me, it'll happen. All you need to know is that a single strand of freshly spun fiber will lean one way or the other when you knit it. It also leans, although not quite as much, if you crochet it. So the trick in making these little granny squares, which I thought was just ingenious, is you do your first circle in the granny square, you know, whatever it is, however you choose to do it. Three double crochets, chain two or three, three more double crochets all in the center hole, and you keep going around until you have the little square started. <clears throat> Instead of chaining three and you keep going, you turn it around and go back the other direction. And then you chain three, and you turn it and you go back the other direction. So you make a granny square of three uh, rotations, each one going the opposite direction of the last one. By doing this, you balance out the extra twist from that singles yarn that you just spun, but you keep the stitches very active, very live. They kind of bounce out at you instead of being a, a flat kind of same old, same old granny square, you now have this single strand of fiber that is literally standing up and kind of popping out of the granny square. It's a spectacular thing. It's enough of a reason to make you go out and buy a spindle. 
Maybe next week we'll talk about how to make your own spindles, because there are two different ways to do it. Both of them very easy. Both of them work just fine. But at some point, you should try to get yourself to a store or to a fiber festival where you can test drive spindles. And I really do recommend test driving them before you buy them uh, instead of just buying them straight offline because they do differ. I came across one brand of spindle at a store. It was all made by the same company. Only one out of the 12 or 13 spindles that they had spun true. And by spinning true, I mean it didn't wobble, it didn't throw itself off, it didn't waste energy in wobbling that you would want to actually go into the spinning. Um, I, I this The company that makes the spindles that I tested is a very reputable company. So the only thing that I could think was that perhaps in the shipping to this store I was at, the hooks got bent. If that is the case and your spindle does start to spin funny, you can adjust the spindle hook. You just need to use beading pliers, ones that don't have grooves on them, because you don't want to ruin the spindle hook. They tend to be fairly delicate. So that's my 57 cents in odd change on granny squares and on, um, and on spinning. I have a link to the summer 2005 issue so you can see what the picture looks like. Um, sadly, they don't have a PDF of that particular pattern. They do have PDFs of some patterns from their more recent issues. And, um, you know, certainly before you describe to jump in feet first and subscribe to a magazine, you should kind of test drive it. One of the ways to do that is through this, uh, this website. And if you are a subscriber to Interweave Knits, you should know that Spinoff is another Interweave publication. And so just like how you see in Interweave Knits, sometimes they'll do the um, go on the web and get the PDF of how to do all these shrugs or all these scarves that the editors came up with. They do the same kind of thing on Spinoff. They're really, it's a very good company. They do lovely, lovely work. So that was the first thing, Granny. Now we get to clutter. I have some news, which is that I may very well be moving away from the charming village of Croton-on-Hudson and moving to the, I guess, equally charming in some places, but much, much bigger, Tucson, Arizona. <clears throat> yes, I know it's 95 degrees there today versus 77 here in Croton, but it's a dry heat. And trust me when I say, that matters. There are lots and lots of different reasons why we might be moving, but... The problem is I, as a stash-oriented person, live in the land of clutter. My husband, were he left to his own devices, would live a completely clutter-free life. I know enough to know that there is a difference between right-brain people and left-brain people, and I know I fall into the right-brain category because, God forbid, if I put it in a drawer, it no longer exists. If I put it in a closet, it doesn't exist anymore. And let's be completely frank, if I put my socks in the sock drawer, they no longer exist anymore. If I can't see it, it's not there. As a consequence, the house is a disaster. We can't even put our house on the market because it is completely filled with stuff. So I'm just trying to box stuff up and stash it in the basement. If you have suggestions for how to declutter one's life, please, please send them on. You can send, actually, 
any comments to mamaonits at gmail.com. That's mama, M-A-M-A, the letter O, knits, K-N-I-T-S, all one word, at gmail.com. And truly, you can email me about anything. So that's Granny Clutter. And now, on to the meat, Pride and Prejudice. Well, chapters 9 and 10, boy, if that didn't give us some insight into class and what really goes on in a classed society, a deeply classed society, where the societal rules are so tightly drawn and people must adhere to them or lose their standing in society, which honestly could mean losing their livelihood, I just can't think of a, a better representation than a Jane Austen book for explaining the intricacies of that to the modern world. And of course, we here in the United States can thank Thomas Jefferson for doing away with that when we got to this country. Um, not that he wasn't a landed aristocrat and wasn't a complete snob, because I think the man was, but he did make sure that uh, we didn't treat our president like a king. And if we did start to treat our president like a king, there are supposed to be checks and balances there for us to to cut that out. He's not a king. He's just a guy like anybody else. He just happens to be running things. Of course, I always kind of laugh when I think of Jefferson doing that because, well, I think he probably would have liked to be treated deferentially. But he certainly did want to be a citizen. And he thought of himself, I think, as a citizen in kind of that classical Greek sense. Certainly, if you've had the, the good fortune to go and visit his home, uh, Monticello in, in Virginia, and, and see it in, in person, you can see his, um, the effect of his Greek and Latin uh, <laughs> educations on him. The house is beautiful. And, um, and not without error, which I also thought was kind of interesting. The clock calendar at the, in the entryway is uh, flawed and um, kind of fun to see that, that even a man of his genius could, uh, could blow it every once in a while. Certainly made me feel better. But back to Pride and Prejudice. Wasn't Miss Bingley pathetic? Oh, I love, I love watching her. She is just, she is just a piece of work. And today, today you get more Miss Bingley being just kind of a horror. Uh, today you get to hear Darcy fess up to his faults, which is always exciting. But, uh, but you do hear him say some just awful things about Elizabeth. Not that he's not attracted to her, but what it means that he's attracted to her. And it hurts. It hurts to hear him say it. <sighs> so, Elizabeth... Elizabeth and Miss Bingley, as you listen to the two of them, please do notice that one of the things Austin is doing is giving Elizabeth a foil. It might not be enough to just read Elizabeth qua Elizabeth without having a Miss Bingley to compare her to. They are set up there in juxtaposition for us to see quite clearly that Miss Bingley is an idiot and that every flaw she has, Elizabeth has the opposing good point. So we see all of Elizabeth's strengths be illuminated because of all of Miss Bingley's faults. It's very cleverly done. And it also does 
give us the chance to see that what Darcy is really attracted to is how smart Elizabeth is. Smart and funny. And, and good. And that even though he and Mr. Bingley gave this laundry list of the perfect woman and what she has to do and what she has to be, it doesn't really matter. Because when it comes down to brass tacks, he wants Elizabeth. So do watch carefully how Austin sets this up for us so that we can really clearly get who Elizabeth is. The other thing that's going to happen in the chapters today, and today is 11, 12, and 13, and they're, they're rather short chapters, is <clears throat> we get to meet a new and exceedingly important character, Mr. Collins. Understand that he and Miss Bingley share that same uh, authorial technique. They are a foil. We haven't seen who he's a foil for yet. That character hasn't been exposed. But when Mr. Collins shows up, he is one of Austin's best written humorous characters. He's just, he's just a fool. And he's a wonderfully written one because he's so earnest. So see if you can pick up on what he's so, so earnest about. And, um, and do listen to Mr. Bennett both this week and next week. Uh, Mr. Bennett will have some nice things to say about Mr. Collins. So without further ado, I would like to give you Pride and Prejudice chapters. I can't believe I just said that. Pride and Prejudice, chapters 11 through 13. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Annie Coleman in St. Louis, Missouri, on December 10, 2005. Pride and Prejudice by Jane Austen Chapter 11 When the ladies removed after dinner, Elizabeth ran up to her sister, and, seeing her well guarded from cold, attended her into the drawing-room, where she was welcomed by her two friends, with many professions of pleasure, and Elizabeth had never seen them so agreeable as they were during the hour which passed before the gentlemen appeared. Their powers of conversation were considerable. They could describe an entertainment with accuracy, relate an anecdote with humor, and laugh at their acquaintance with spirit. But when the gentlemen entered, Jane was no longer the first object. Miss Bingley's eyes were instantly turned toward Darcy, and she had something to say to him before he had advanced many steps. He addressed himself to Miss Bennet with a polite congratulation. Mr. Hurst also made her a slight bow, and said he was very glad, but diffuseness and warmth remained for Bingley's salutation. He was full of joy and attention. The first half hour was spent in piling up the fire, lest she should suffer from the change of room, and she removed at his desire to the other side of the fireplace, that she might be further from the door. He then sat down by her, and talked scarcely to anyone else. Elizabeth, at work in the opposite corner, saw it all with great delight. 
When tea was over, Mr. Hurst reminded his sister-in-law of the card-table, but in vain. She had obtained private intelligence that Mr. Darcy did not wish for cards, and Mr. Hurst soon found even his open petition rejected. She assured him that no one intended to play, and the silence of the whole party on the subject seemed to justify her. Mr. Hurst had therefore nothing to do but to stretch himself on one of the sofas and go to sleep. Darcy took up a book, Miss Bingley did the same, and Mrs. Hurst, principally occupied in playing with her bracelets and rings, joined now and then in her brother's conversation with Miss Bennet. Miss Bingley's attention was quite as much engaged in watching Mr. Darcy's progress through his book as in reading her own, and she was perpetually either making some inquiry or looking at his page. She could not win him, however, to any conversation. He merely answered her question and read on. At length, quite exhausted by the attempt to be amused with her own book, which she had only chosen because it was the second volume of his, she gave a great yawn and said, "'How pleasant it is to spend an evening in this way! I declare, after all, there is no enjoyment like reading. How much sooner one tires of anything than a book! When I have a house of my own, I shall be miserable if I have not an excellent library.' No one made any reply. She then yawned again, threw aside her book, and cast her eyes round the room in quest for some amusement. When hearing her brother mentioning a ball to Miss Bennet, she turned suddenly towards him and said, "'By the by, Charles, are you really serious in meditating a dance at Netherfield? I would advise you, before you determine on it, to consult the wishes of the present party.' I am much mistaken if there are not some among us to whom a ball would be rather a punishment than a pleasure. "'If you mean Darcy,' cried her brother, "'he may go to bed, if he chooses before it begins. But as for the ball, it is quite a settled thing. And as soon as Nichols has made white soup enough, I shall send round my cards.' "'I should like balls infinitely better,' she replied, "'if they were carried on in a different manner.' but there is something insufferably tedious in the usual process of such a meeting. It would surely be much more rational if conversation, instead of dancing, were made the order of the day. Much more rational, my dear Caroline, I dare say, but it would not be near so much like a ball. Miss Spangley made no answer, and soon afterwards she got up and walked about the room. Her figure was elegant, and she walked well. But Darcy, at whom it was all aimed, was still inflexibly studious. In the desperation of her feelings, she resolved on one effort more, and, turning to Elizabeth, said, "'Miss Eliza Bennet, let me persuade you to follow my example, and take a turn about the room. I assure you it is very refreshing after sitting so long in one attitude.' Elizabeth was surprised but agreed to it immediately. Miss Bingley succeeded no less in the real object of her civility. Mr. Darcy looked up. He was as much awake to the novelty of attention in that quarter as Elizabeth herself could be, 
and unconsciously closed his book. He was directly invited to join their party, but he declined it, observing that he could imagine but two motives for their choosing to walk up and down the room together, with either of which motives his joining them would interfere. What could he mean? She was dying to know what could be his meaning, and asked Elizabeth whether she could at all understand him. Not at all, was her answer, but depend upon it. If he means to be severe on us, and our surest way of disappointing him, will be to ask nothing about it. Miss Bingley, however, was incapable of disappointing Mr. Darcy in anything, and persevered, therefore, in requiring an explanation of his two motives. "'I have not the smallest objection to explaining them,' said he, as soon as she allowed him to speak. "'You either choose this method of passing the evening, because you are in each other's confidence, and have secret affairs to discuss, or because you are conscious that your figures appear to the greatest advantage in walking. If the first, I will be completely in your way, and if by the second, I can admire you much better as I sit by the fire.' "'Oh, shocking!' cried Miss Bingley. "'I never heard anything so abominable. How shall we punish him for such a speech?' "'Nothing so easy if you have but the inclination,' said Elizabeth. "'We can all plague and punish one another. "'Tease him, laugh at him. "'Intimate as you are, you must know how it is to be done. "'But upon my honour I do not. "'I do assure you that my intimacy has not yet taught me that. "'Tease calmness of manner and presence of mind. "'No, no, feel he may defy us there. "'And as to laughter, we will not expose ourselves.' if you please, by attempting to laugh without a subject. Mr. Darcy may hug himself. Mr. Darcy is not to be laughed at, cried Elizabeth. That is an uncommon advantage, and uncommon I hope it will continue, for it would be a great loss to me to have many such acquaintances. I dearly love a laugh. Miss Bingley, said he, has given me more credit than can be. The wisest and the best of men— Nay, the wisest and best of their actions, may be rendered ridiculous by a person whose first object in life is a joke. Certainly, replied Elizabeth, there are such people, but I hope I am not one of them. I hope I never ridicule what is wise and good. Follies and nonsense, whims and inconsistencies, do divert me, I own, and I laugh at them whenever I can." But these, I suppose, are precisely what you are without. Perhaps that is not possible for any one, but it has been the study of my life to avoid those weaknesses which often expose a strong understanding to ridicule, such as vanity and pride. Yes, vanity is a weakness indeed, but pride, where there is a real superiority of mind, pride will be always under good regulation. Elizabeth turned away to hide a smile. "'Your examination of Mr. Darcy is over, I presume,' said Miss Bingley. "'And pray, what is the result?' "'I am perfectly convinced by it that Mr. Darcy has no defect. He owns it himself without disguise.' "'No,' said Darcy. "'I have made no such pretension. I have faults enough, but they are not, I hope, of understanding. My temper I dare not vouch for.' 
It is, I believe, too little yielding, certainly too little for the convenience of the world. I cannot forget the follies and vices of other so soon as I ought, nor their offences against myself. My feelings are not puffed about with every attempt to move them. My temper would perhaps be called resentful. My good opinion, once lost, is lost forever. That is a failing indeed, cried Elizabeth. Implacable resentment is a shade in a character, but you have chosen your fault well. I really cannot laugh at it. You are safe from me. There is, I believe, in every disposition, a tendency to some particular evil, a natural defect, which not even the best education can overcome. And your defect is to hate everybody. And yours, he replied with a smile, is willfully to misunderstand them. Do let us have a little music, cried Miss Bingley, tired of a conversation in which she had no share. Louisa, you will not mind my waking Mr. Hurst. Her sister had not the smallest objection, and the pianoforte was opened, and Darcy, after a few moments' recollection, was not sorry for it. He began to feel the danger of paying Elizabeth too much attention. End of chapter 11 Chapter 12 In consequence of an agreement between the sisters, Elizabeth wrote the next morning to their mother to beg that the carriage might be sent for them in the course of the day. But Mrs. Bennet, who had calculated on her daughter's remaining at Netherfield to the following Tuesday, which would exactly finish Jane's week, could not bring herself to receive them with pleasure before. Her answer, therefore, was not propitious, at least not to Elizabeth's wishes, for she was impatient to get home. Mrs. Bennet sent them word that they could not possibly have the carriage before Tuesday, and in her postscript it was added that if Mr. Bingley and his sister pressed them to stay longer, she could spare them very well. Against staying longer, however, Elizabeth was positively resolved, nor did she much expect it would be asked, and fearful, on the contrary, as being considered as intruding themselves needlessly long, she urged Jane to borrow Mr. Bingley's carriage immediately, and at length it was settled that their original design of leaving Netherfield that morning should be mentioned and the request made. The communication excited many professions of concern, and enough was said of wishing them to stay at least till the following day to work on Jane, and till the morrow their going was deferred. Miss Bingley was then sorry that she had proposed the delay, for her jealousy and dislike of one sister much exceeded her affection for the other. The master of the house heard with real sorrow that they were to go so soon, and repeatedly tried to persuade Miss Bennet that it would not be safe for her, that she was not enough recovered. But Jane was firm where she felt herself to be right. To Mr. Darcy it was welcome intelligence. Elizabeth had been at Netherfield long enough. She attracted him more than he liked, and Miss Bingley was uncivil to her, and more teasing than usual to himself. He wisely resolved to be particularly careful that no sign of admiration should now escape him, 
nothing that could elevate her with the hope of influencing his felicity, sensible that if such an idea had been suggested, his behavior during the last day must have material weight in confirming or crushing it. Steady to his purpose, he scarcely spoke ten words to her through the whole of Saturday, and though they were at one time left by themselves, for half an hour he adhered most conscientiously to his book and would not even look at her. On Sunday, after morning service, the separation, so agreeable to almost all, took place. Miss Bingley's civility to Elizabeth increased at last very rapidly, as well as her affection for Jane, and when they parted, after assuring the latter of the pleasure it would always give her to see her either at Longbourn or Netherfield, and embracing her most tenderly, she even shook hands with the former. Elizabeth took leave of the whole party in the liveliest of spirits. They were not welcomed home very cordially by their mother. Mrs. Bennet wondered at their coming, and thought them very wrong to give so much trouble, and was sure Jane would have caught cold again. But their father, though very laconic in his expressions of pleasure, was really glad to see them. He had felt their importance in the family circle. The evening conversation, when they were all assembled, had lost much of its animation, and almost all of its sense, by the absence of Jane and Elizabeth. They found Mary, as usual, deep in the study of thorough base and human nature, and had some extracts to admire, and some new observations of threadbare morality to listen to. Catherine and Lydia had information for them of a different sort. Much had been done, and much had been said, in the regiment since the preceding Wednesday. Several of the officers had dined lately with their uncle. A private had been flogged, and it had actually been hinted that Colonel Forster was going to be married. End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 "'I hope, my dear,' said Mr. Bennet to his wife, as they were at breakfast the next morning, "'that you have ordered a good dinner to-day, because I have reason to expect an addition to our family party.' "'Who do you mean, my dear? I know of nobody that is coming.' I am sure, unless Charlotte Lucas should happen to call in, and I hope my dinners are good enough for her. I do not believe she often sees such at home. The person of whom I speak is a gentleman and a stranger. Mrs. Bennet's eyes sparkled. A gentleman and a stranger? It is Mr. Bingley, I am sure. Well, I am sure I shall be extremely glad to see Mr. Bingley, but— "'Good Lord, how unlucky! There is not a bit of fish to be got to-day. "'Lydia, my love, ring the bell. I must speak to Hill this moment.' "'It is not Mr. Bingley,' said her husband. "'It is a person whom I never saw in the whole course of my life.' This roused a general astonishment, and he had the pleasure of being eagerly questioned by his wife and his five daughters at once. After amusing himself some time with their curiosity, he thus explained, "'About a month ago I received this letter, and about a fortnight ago I answered it, for I thought it a case of some delicacy, and requiring early attention. 
it is from my cousin, Mr. Collins, who, when I am dead, may turn you all out of this house as soon as he pleases. Oh, my dear, cried his wife, I cannot bear to hear that mentioned. Pray do not talk of that odious man. I do think it is the hardest thing in the world that your estate should be entailed away from your own children, and I am sure if I had been you, I should have tried long ago to do something or other about it. Jane and Elizabeth tried to explain to her the nature of an entail. They had often attempted to do it before, but it was a subject on which Mrs. Bennet was beyond the reach of reason, and she continued to rail bitterly against the cruelty of settling an estate away from a family of five daughters in favor of a man whom nobody cared anything about. "'It certainly is a most inquisitous affair,' said Mr. Bennet, "'and nothing can clear Mr. Collins from the guilt of inheriting Longbourn. "'But if you will listen to his letter, "'you may perhaps be a bit softened by his manner of expressing himself.' "'No, that I am sure I shall not, "'and I think it is very impertinent of him to write to you at all, "'and very hypocritical. "'I hate such false friends.' "'Why could he not keep on quarrelling with you as his father did before him?' "'Why, indeed, he does seem to have had some filial scruples on that head, as you will hear. "'Huntsford, near Westerham, Kent, 15th October. "'Dear Sir, the disagreement subsisting between yourself and my late honoured father "'always gave me much uneasiness, and since I have had the misfortune to lose him, I have frequently wished to heal the breach, but for some time I was kept back by my own doubts, fearing lest it might seem disrespectful to his memory for me to be on good terms with any one with whom it had always pleased him to be at variance. There, Mrs. Bennet. My mind, however, is now made up on the subject, for having received ordination at Easter, I have been so fortunate as to be distinguished by the patronage of the right honourable Lady Catherine de Bourg, widow of Sir Louis de Bourg, whose bounty and beneficence has preferred me to the valuable rectory of this parish, where it shall be my earnest endeavour to demean myself with grateful respect towards her ladyship, and be ever ready to perform those rites and ceremonies which are instituted by the Church of England. As a clergyman, moreover, I feel it my duty to promote and establish the blessing of peace in all families within the reach of my influence, and on these grounds I flatter myself that my present overtures are highly commendable, and that the circumstance of my being next in the entail of Longbourn Estate will be kindly overlooked on your side, and not lead you to reject the offered olive branch. I cannot be otherwise than concerned at being the means of injuring your amiable daughters, and beg leave to apologize for it, as well as to assure you of my readiness to make them every possible amends. But of this hereafter, if you should have no objection to receive me into your house, I propose myself the satisfaction of waiting on you and your family, Monday, November 18th, by four o'clock, and shall probably trespass on your hospitality till the Saturday Saturday night following which I can do without any inconvenience, as Lady Catherine is far from objecting to my occasional absence on a Sunday, provided that some other clergyman is engaged to do the duty of the day. I remain, dear sir, 
with respectful compliments to your lady and daughters, your well-wisher and friend, William Collins. At four o'clock, therefore, we may expect this peacemaking gentleman, said Mr. Bennet as he folded up the letter. He seems to be a most conscientious and polite young man, upon my word, and I doubt not will prove a valuable acquaintance, especially if Lady Catherine should be so indulgent as to let him come to us again. There is some sense in what he says about the girls, however, and if he is disposed to make them any amends, I shall not be the person to discourage him. Though it is difficult, said Jane, to guess in what way he can mean to make us the atonement he thinks our due. The wish is certainly to his credit. Elizabeth was chiefly struck by his extraordinary deference for Lady Catherine, and his kind intention of christening, marrying, and burying his parishioners whenever it were required. He must be an oddity, I think, said she. I cannot make him out. There is something very pompous in his style. And what can he mean by apologizing for being next in the entail? We cannot suppose he would help it if he could. Could he be a sensible man, sir? No, my dear, I think not. I have great hopes of finding him quite the reverse. There is a mixture of servility and self-importance in his letter, which promises well. I am impatient to see him. In point of composition, said Mary, the letter does not seem defective. The idea of the olive branch perhaps is not wholly new, yet I think it is well expressed. To Catherine and Lydia, neither the letter nor its writer were in any degree interesting. It was next to impossible that their cousin should come in a scarlet coat, and it was now some weeks since they had received pleasure from the society of a man in any other color. As for their mother, Mr. Collins' letter had done away much of her ill-will, and she was preparing to see him with a degree of composure which astonished her husband and daughters. Mr. Collins was punctual to his time, and was received with great politeness by the whole family. Mr. Bennet indeed said little, but the ladies were ready enough to talk, and Mr. Collins seemed neither in need of encouragement nor inclined to be silent himself. He was a tall, heavy-looking young man of five-and-twenty. His air was grave and stately, and his manners were very formal. He had not been long seated before he complimented Mrs. Bennet on having so fine a family of daughters, said he had heard much of their beauty, but that in this instance fame had fallen short of the truth, and added that he did not doubt her seeing them all in due time disposed of in marriage. This gallantry was not much to the taste of some of the hearers, but Mrs. Bennet, who quarrelled with no compliments, answered most readily, "'You are very kind, I am sure, and I wish with all my heart it may prove so, for else they will be destitute enough. Things are settled so oddly.' "'You allude, perhaps, to the entail of this estate?' "'Ah, sir, I do indeed. It is a grievous affair to my poor girls, you must confess.' Not that I mean to find fault with you, for such things I know are all chance in this world. There is no knowing how estates will go when once they come to be entailed. I am very sensible, madam, of the hardship to my fair cousins, and could say much on the subject, but that I am cautious of appearing forward and precipitate, but I can assure the young ladies that I come prepared to admire them, 
At present I will not say more, but perhaps, when we are better acquainted, he was interrupted by a summons to dinner, and the girls smiled on each other. They were not the only objects of Mr. Collins' admiration. The hall, the dining-room, and all its furniture were examined and praised, and his commendation of everything would have touched Mrs. Bennet's heart, but for the mortifying supposition of his viewing it all as his own future property. The dinner, too, in its turn, was highly admired, and he begged to know to which of his fair cousins the excellency of its cooking was owing. But he was set right there by Mrs. Bennet, who assured him, with some asperity, that they were very well able to keep a good cook, and that her daughters had nothing to do in the kitchen. He begged pardon for having displeased her. In a softened tone she declared herself not at all offended, but he continued to apologize for about a quarter of an hour. End of chapter 13 I hope you enjoyed chapters 11 through 13 of Pride and Prejudice, and I hope you'll come back next week for chapters 14 through 15. As always, I'd like to thank Annie Coleman for her reading of the book, and thank you to Josh Christian, who did Chasing Hero. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com or craftlit.libsyn.com. That's craftlit, C-R-A-F-T-L-I-T, all one word, and Libsyn, L-I-B-S-Y-N. And of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. And do remember, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. Have a great week. Bye.